0: Thank you to the Rural Albert Advantage for that great introduction. Hi, I'm Rick Cole, and you are listening to the 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast. We come to you each week from the beautiful Niagara region of Ontario, Canada, bringing you all the hockey news and other sporting stories from 50 years ago. This time around, we're in the week of October 11th to October 17th, 1970. Our podcast is made possible each week by the support of our two sponsors. Newspapers.com is the world's largest online newspaper archive and their support has been crucial to our research as they enable us to access all the news from the 1970s. We're also sponsored by the Breakwall Brewing Company of Port Coburn, Ontario. They're located downtown just a block from the Welland Canal. They make some of the Ontario's finest craft beers. Some of them made from recipes that were actually uh, conceived back in the late 1800s in the early breweries that were located in Port Coburn. When things get somewhat back to normal, I'd love to meet any of our listeners at the break wall for a burger and a beer. We'd like to remind you a bit about our Patreon account uh, at uh, patreon.com slash hockey50years. You can go there and donate to help defray some of the expenses that we've incurred while putting this podcast on. And in exchange, you'll get early access to each week's show and you'll also get special bonus episodes, content that won't be found in these free podcasts every Friday. Uh, we take a deep dive into certain things this week for our, our users. They've got a complete hour long in depth, uh, prediction on the uh, upcoming 1970-71 season. We're also going to do a show on the death of Terry Sawchuck, and we have some interviews we've conducted over the past year with a number of hockey personalities, and we'll have all that in our special bonus episodes for subscribers of our Patreon account. Last week, we had a few interesting stories for you. We provided a a quick overview of what some of the top hockey writers around the NHL were predicting for the 1970-71 season. We had some coverage of the very first NHL games played by both of the NHL's newest expansion teams, the Buffalo Sabres and the Vancouver Canucks. And we saw some ominous signs that could signal some obstacles that may face new Detroit Red Wings coach Ned Harkness as he tries to remake the Red Wings in his own image. Would it work? Time would only tell. This week the National Hockey League schedule is fully underway and we have results for some of the key games that took place in that first week. We'll also talk about another veteran member of the Montreal Canadiens calling it quits. What's going on in Montreal? Those four stars of the New York Rangers who were holding out finally signed their 70-71 contracts. We'll tell you about that. And we have the usual news, notes, and rumors from around the hockey world for this week. First up, we're going to give you some results from uh, some of the key games in the opening week this season. For the Toronto Maple Leafs, it was a new season, but the early results look suspiciously like the mess that the team was in last year. Uh, on Sunday evening, they went into Vancouver uh, playing a team they should handle easily, an expansion team. It should have been an easy win for the East uh, Division Club, but of course it wasn't the Canucks, thanks to a strong performance from forward Andre Boudria, dumped Toronto by a 5-3 score in a completely sold-out Pacific Coliseum. Now that 5-3 score was actually very flattering to the Toronto club. They trailed 5-0 before the Canucks took their foot off the gas pedal and allowed the Leafs to score three times in the final 11 minutes of the contest. While uh, credit should be given to the Canucks for what was a spirited performance before a capacity home crowd that had more than a few Toronto supporters, but not that many. Some Toronto writers called out the Maple Leafs in no uncertain terms. Frank Orr, who's a fine hockey reporter for the Toronto Star, and by the way, Frank's finally been given more prominent role with the paper. He was sent to Vancouver by the Star to cover the game, and his report... Was less than complimentary to the Toronto club. Frank started his story, the very first paragraph, with a succinct assessment of the Toronto game. Inexperienced defense, erratic clearing, effect checking, slipshod positional play. Remember all those negative features that highlighted Toronto Maple Leafs' underwhelming last place finish in the 1969-70 season? Well, nothing has changed. That's Frank Gore's assessment. And he wasn't wrong. Frank went on to write that the Leafs young defense of Brian Glenny, Ricky Lee, Jim Dory, Brad Selwood showed a lot of desire in the game. But momentary hesitation while deciding what to do with the puck gave the Canucks the time required to eliminate the possibility of completing any type of play at all. Uh, Frequently, there was nothing the kid defenders could do because the Leaf forwards were not in position, weren't moving, didn't keep their feet moving, and were no way able to accept any of the passes they did make. Toronto coach Johnny McClellan who looks more forlorn than any coach we've ever seen after a loss they really hit Johnny hard his this was his comment on the game I thought we were really worked up for the game but we just had no zip Vancouver played well and checked the hell out of us they out hustled and they out bumped us too. The Canucks held a 1-0 lead after a first period in which they outshot Toronto by a 9-6 margin. Captain Orland Curtinbeck scored that goal. In the middle frame, second minute, Wayne Mackey put Vancouver up 2-0 and former lease prospect Danny Johnson made it 3-0 about 12 minutes later. Wayne Mackey scored again about a minute and a half after that to make the count 4-0 after 40 minutes. At the nine-minute mark of the final period, Andre Boudria added to the two assists he already had uh, with his first goal of the season. But seven seconds later, Norm Ullman finally got Toronto on the board, and that was followed up by goals from Brad Selwood and Dave Keon, but it was a case of too little, too late, and the Leafs went down to defeat by a score of 5-3. The final shots on goal totals pretty much reflected just how wide a margin Vancouver held in the play as they directed 36 drives at Leafs netminder Bruce Gamble while Charlie Hodge in the Vancouver goal had to face only 19 shots. The Canucks were a more relaxed group than the nervous, often tentative team that Vancouver fans saw in their first game. The Montreal Canadiens' first contest of the season was a tough, close 2-1 win over the Flyers at the Spectrum in Philadelphia. The Habs could have amassed more goals if not for the superb goaltending of Philadelphia netminder Bernie Perrant who stopped 28 of 30 Montreal shots. The game was scoreless through the first 40 minutes of play as Perrant and Montreal netminder Rogatiam Vachon matched each other save for save with Perrant having to make numerous timely stops. It wasn't until the 35 second mark of the final period that the match's first goal was scored by mickey redmond of the canadians bill collins who was probably surprisingly montreal's best player because of a strong forechecking and outstanding penalty killing made it two nothing a few minutes later and that was all she wrote The Flyers did get one back thanks to the first National Hockey League goal by 31-year-old rookie defenseman Barry Ashby, but that was as close as the Flyers could get to making a game of it. Now this one started out as a pretty rough affair with referee Bruce Hood calling 10 first period penalties including fighting majors to Montreal's Terry Harper and the Flyers rookie Bob Kelly. Things calmed down after that quite a bit with only two more miners called the rest of the game and both of them went to the Flyers. That was probably uh, to the Habs advantage. They're a skilled team a fast team and uh, they could probably be slowed down by a lot of bumping especially with John Ferguson now gone Uh, but that didn't happen and the Canadians held on to take that 2-1 victory. Another opening game uh, was held at Boston Garden on Sunday evening. Uh, The Detroit Red Wings were the opposition to the Bruins, and Boston showed why they must be considered a Stanley Cup favorites once again. They cruised to a 7-3 trouncing of the Detroit squad. The news wasn't all good for Boston, though. Their superstar defenseman, young Bobby Orr, was lost with an apparent leg injury in the second period, and he did not return. Orr left the game at the eight minute mark when he was brought down by Big Frank Mahavlich. The Big M was penalized for kneeing on the play, but Karma had her way with Frank as he was actually injured on the same play and he left the game not to return as well. It was later determined Frank had a knee injury. Now Orr's injury was described as a Charlie horse and the Bruins declared it was nothing that was gonna keep him out of the lineup for an extended period of time, but teams always say that until they know for sure. But for the Big M, that knee injury didn't look good and the Red Wings thought they might be losing him for an extended period of time. The game really wasn't close, and the, the Wings didn't look like a very good hockey team, and they didn't look very different from the group uh, that finished last season, despite everyone, including Ned Harkness, the coach, extolling the virtues uh, of this new team and how they were hustling. Boston controlled the game, and they held a huge territorial advantage over the Wings out shooting them, 42-28. to 28. Don Marcotte scored two goals in a very industrious performance by the young winger. Phil Esposito, Wayne Cashman, Johnny Busick, Wayne Carlton, and Ken Hodge had the other Bruins markers. Rookie Hank Monteith, Pete Semkowski, and veteran Billy Day scored for Detroit. Jerry Cheevers put in a workman like night in goal for Boston, making the key saves on those few occasions when it was most necessary. As it turned out, Orr's injury didn't sideline him for any appreciable length of time at all. In fact, as the Bruins made their way to the West Coast for a couple of games in California, Bobby was in the lineup. And on Friday night at Oakland, before a crowd that was an amazingly complete sellout, in fact, they turned away 3,000 people, Orr was at his amazing best, scoring twice in a Boston win over... The Golden Seals. Or up to Hodge. Here's Espo, center right. Cashman's open. Espo to Caspin. Picks there. Go. scores his first goal of the new season. And it's 2 up in Boston. Orr trailing the play picked up the rebound right off the stick of Gary Smith, and he had the whole net to himself. Back to Orr. Orr, full tilt, gets around the line moving through, shot, goal! It's 5-1 on a shorthanded goal by Bobby Orr. Now let's get to the rest of the news in the notes this weekend. There was a lot going on. Gordie Howe did, as expected, open the season on defense for the Red Wings, although those who saw him as a rear guard described them more, actually, as a rover playing a defense uh, much in the manner that Bobby Orr does and remember last week uh, when we told you how new wings coach Ned Harkness had been bragging how his Red Wing players were working so hard and hustling for him as if it were he that were providing the motivation well Ned was singing a different tune by the end of this first week of the NHL season. Harkness team was struggling with injuries to key players like Frank Mahovlich, Bob Bond, Gary Younger. and Ron Harris, and lost to the Canadians badly on Thursday. That was after that pasting the Bruins gave them on Sunday. Harkness refused uh, to blame injuries for the Red Wings' poor play. Uh, He said that the Wings would have beaten Montreal if they had gotten a full effort from the players. Less than a full effort from a team in the first week of the season, Sounds, Ned, like this could be maybe a a a motivational thing. Jean Rattel and Vic Hadfield agreed to their 1970-71 contracts with the Rangers in time to play for the team in their opening night 3-1 loss to the St. Louis Blues. But in that game, Brad Park and Walter Kachuk were still on the sidelines. They had not agreed to contracts. However, by the end of the week... Both players would finally agree to terms and the Rangers fans breathed a sigh of relief. An interesting note on the Park Kachuk signings, the usual signing ceremony in General Manager Emil Francis' office took place on Wednesday afternoon. And both players requested that Steve Arnold and Marty Blackman of Pro Sports Inc., the agency that represented the players, well, they requested that those two guys be present for the obligatory photo op. Francis, however, refused to allow the pair into the building to join in the festivities. And how petty was that? Actually, it was just another example of National Hockey League uh, management showing that no matter what the players think, they still hold the hammer and they can influence as much of uh, their lives as they want. And that was just Emil Francis' way of showing that he's still the boss. There's a lot of talk in Toronto that the Maple Leafs are actively exploring a trade or some other method to bring in a veteran defenseman. The Leafs' young blue line corps is made up entirely of youngsters Jim McKenney, Rick Lee, Brad Selwood, Mike Pellick, and Brian Glennie. You can bet that if a veteran with anything left in the tank makes it either to the waiver wire or becomes available in a trade, General Manager Jim Gregory the Leafs will be quick to make a phone call. Former Leafs captain George Armstrong retired, is, is back again and was back again in the Maple Leafs training camp, and he really looked like he could help this team who need a lot of help. As week went on however he and Jim Gregory the general manager were unable to come to an agreement on a contract. Gregory was still holding out hope that the Chief would return to the Toronto lineup before too long. It's a young team and his veteran presence could do nothing but help those young kids. And by the way the papers in Vancouver already had the Leafs firing coach McClellan. Last week during the uh, preseason prognostications by the different writers around the NHL, we told you about Pat Curran, the fine writer of the Montreal Gazette, saying the Canadians could probably finish solidly in third in the NHL's Eastern Division. Well Pat had made his assessment before John Ferguson announced his retirement last week and then when veteran center Ralph Backstrom declared he was hanging up his skates as well this week that caused Pat to further lower his Habs expectations and he now lists the Canadians as no better than fourth place in the Eastern Division. Curran by the way feels that Ralph Backstrom's retirement is completely due to his incompatibility with coach Claude Ruel and that's not an unfamiliar theme for Montreal fans and their veteran players. Curran correctly observed that Backstrom is in Ruel's doghouse and once a player lands in a situation like that with Ruel it's almost impossible to escape. Curran feels, like many Montreal fans do, that Ralph Backstrom has lots of gas left in the tank and that a trade to another National Hockey League club could just be the tonic that Ralph needs to come back to the Ice Wars. This feels a lot like the Dick Duff situation of last season all over again. Two teams Curran figures will make a pitch for Backstrom are Toronto and Vancouver. Now the Canucks would be a good fit for Ralph they're not strong down the middle but Toronto has good center strength and we don't think that they would make a play for Ralph Backstrom. Uh, The Leafs would be more interested in getting as we mentioned help on the blue line than yet another center. One other high profile contract uh, impasse was settled before a team's first game that first weekend as well Derek Sanderson who we said was far apart in his negotiations with the Bruins signed his deal just before Boston's first game Sunday night against Detroit while the contract is laden with numerous performance bonuses Sandy's base salary is said to be only about $35,000 that's still a double more than double than what he made last year but about half of what Sanderson figured he was worth to the Bruins. Even though he signed, Derek didn't dress in the Bruins' first game as coach Tom Johnson correctly cited his obvious lack of conditioning and he wanted him to work out a few days before putting him in an actual NHL game. A pleasant surprise for the St. Louis Blues in their opening 3-1 win over the Rangers was the play of center Chris Bortolo. Bortolo scored two goals against the Rangers and Wally Cross of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch said that Bordelo is possibly blossoming into, quote, another Red Berenson. And we all know how Red uh, came to prominence after being traded to the Blues from the Rangers in 1967. Minnesota North Stars rookie defenseman Fred Barrett, with exactly zero games of NHL experience, had this assessment of his first NHL match which was against the Philadelphia Flyers. Now remember, this is a rookie after playing his first NHL game talking about other NHL players who've been around for a while. Barrett said, I really didn't know what to expect but I was somewhat disappointed by some of the Bush leaguers. He called guys Bush leaguers. Fred said, you expect to get hit with a stick now and then but a few things went on out there Saturday that weren't major league. I got one stick right in the temple. I tried to push one guy out from in front of the net and he hit me over the head with his stick. I thought it was an accident, but I learned in a hurry that it wasn't. Fred Barrett, young guy, inexperienced, could be letting himself in for a whole world of hurt when he plays the Flyers again next time and the Bush leaguers show him how major leaguers effect retribution. The Philadelphia Flyers, by the way, uh, they have a great outlook this season. They're really enthusiastic. Coach uh, Vic Stasiuk has the team hustling. And one of the reasons that the Flyers are so enthusiastic has been the play of goalkeeper Doug Favell. Doug has completely recovered from that severed Achilles tendon he suffered near the end of last season. He came into training camp in great shape and he's battling Bernie Perrant for the number one net minding job with Philadelphia. Could this be the year the Flyers finally man up and trade a goalie for some much needed actually desperately needed scoring help? Stay tuned on that one bit out of Vancouver is the Canucks departed for their first road trip of the season on Sunday evening. General Manager Bud Poyle stayed behind in Vancouver and it was said he was working on a trade with the Bay Area Seals. The Seals were looking for a goalkeeper or a defenseman from the Canucks and they were said to be offering a forward of some type maybe a winger. Uh, it was thought that one of Vancouver goalies George Gardner or Dunk Wilson could end up going to California with the possibility of either veteran forward Earl Ingerfield or Ted Hampson moving to Vancouver. The Vancouver writers breathlessly waited for a deal to take place but as the week wore on no trade between the two teams materialized but that didn't mean they weren't talking. Vancouver Sun hockey reporter Hal Sigurdsson who never met a trade rumor he didn't like figured the Canucks were making a play for one of Ingerfield or Hampson and he was told by Seals general manager Frank Selkie Jr. that neither player is available to anyone. Selke quite flatly said the Canucks are not getting either of those guys. Sulky, basically a decent honest guy, did admit that left winger Ted Taylor, absent from the Canucks and still at home on his farm in Manitoba, is one player the Seals would be interested in if the Canucks offered him up. But, he said, Taylor wouldn't be enough to pry uh, Hampson or Ingerfield loose from the Seals. The Canucks brash rookie Jim Hargraves had been described by Vancouver writers as being everything from cocky to free-spirited to disrespectful. You'll remember Hargraves held out uh, for a better contract and uh, he epitomized uh, what a brash rookie actually looks like. He signed this contract in time to uh, play on the uh, second Vancouver game, and Leko said, "I have to play him if I don't, he'll probably bust up the furniture. Somebody suggested that Hargraves was a little cocky for a kid just out of junior." But Hal Lako says that's okay. I hope he stays that way. He's not afraid of anybody. And as if just to show people that that was actually true, Hargraves has already taken on the legendary Babe Pratt. He's the uh, Canuck, works in the Canucks front office, and he's a Hockey Hall of Famer. The 19-year-old chooses to pretend that he's not aware of Pratt's hockey fame and what he's famous for, and he lets on that he thinks Babe Pratt was a goalie in his playing days. In fact, the kid said, hey, babe, how many shutouts did you have in the NHL? The kid had better back up his mouth with some talent, or he may not be long for the league. There are people who believe respect is very important in the NHL, and there will be steps taken to ensure that the kid shows the proper respect to the legends of the game. The Chicago Blackhawks got a couple of missing players back, and boy, they were glad to see that. Veteran defenseman Pat Stapleton ended a brief holdout by signing a three-year contract with the Blackhawks, and Stan Makita. Uh, who'd been out with injuries, uh, returned to practice after spending three days in a local hospital with a virus combined with a painful stiff neck. Uh, Stan looks none the worse for wear and the Hawks expect a big season from him. Penguins are going to have a bit of a different look this season and it starts in goal and no, they haven't brought in any new goalkeepers. Les Binkley and Al Smith are still here, but Les Binkley, for the first time in his career, is wearing a mask in games. Uh, he's wearing the same model that Ernie Wakeley of the Blues uh, sports, and uh Les said that he's going to continue with the mask after wearing it in the Penguins' first game that he played. Les has suffered several serious facial fractures during the past couple of seasons, and he figures that wearing a mask could keep him playing in the NHL for more than just a couple of years. Buffalo Sabres general manager coach Punch Imlach announced that he had traded veteran center Howie Menard to the Oakland Seals in exchange for undisclosed future considerations. Courier Express hockey writer Charlie Barton, one of the best of them, speculated that those considerations could arrive in Buffalo quite soon in the form of forward Paul Andrea and defenseman Dick Matiusi. Both of those players recently refused assignments by the Seals to the American Hockey League Providence Reds. The very next day after the Menard trade, veterans Phil Goyette and Don Marshall, Goyette's 37 and Marshall's 38, both announced that they are retiring from hockey. You remember they left the Sabres to return to their respective homes in Montreal. Well, Goyette and Marshall insist that money is not the issue, and that uh, Punch Imlek had actually offered both of them sizable races. Goyette came right out and said he wants to spend more time with his young family, and you can't blame Phil for that. You'll remember that we told you about a proposed charter service that was going to take hockey fans from Alberta to uh, Vancouver Canucks games all season. Well, for Sunday night's game against the Maple Leafs, one hundred and seventeen Alberta fans were in attendance. Each of them paid sixty five dollars, leaving Edmonton boarding a plane at ten thirty AM, and then stopping for a brief layover in Calgary to pick up a few more fans before making the flight over the Rockies to the West Coast. The party arrived at Pacific Coliseum about an hour before game time, plenty of time to see uh, the match begin. Roger Bourbonnais, who's a former Canadian national team player and is now an Edmonton lawyer, says that even at the exorbitant price of $65, the response from hockey fans in Alberta has been tremendous and several more planned excursions are already sold out. Here's an interesting news item that bears watching uh, as time goes on. According to National Hockey League President Clarence Campbell, a minor professional hockey league could replace junior hockey in Canada. Uh, Campbell did not rule out that possibility. During a discussion this week on the problems of junior hockey as it relates to the NHL, Campbell said, we don't like some of the aspects of the current administration. Campbell thinks they're running junior hockey in a very uh, slipshod way, and he feels that if the professionals took over with profit in mind, that things would be better for everybody, and we'll just have to see how this unfolds as time goes on. Well, we called the Seals the Bay Area Seals a little earlier today. Well, guess what? By the end of the week, there were no more Bay Area Seals. In fact, Wednesday evening at a dinner for the sporting press in Oakland, Charles O. Finley, the owner of the Seals, declared that he has now renamed his hockey team once again and they will now be known as the California golden seals golden in a hockey team name ever thought of something silly like that interestingly and as is usually the case with charles o finley, there's a little more to the story finley apparently a week before this had called the san francisco examiner newspaper to leak to them the scoop that there was an impending name change for the Seals. He said he was going to rename the club, according to the report in the Examiner, he told them that he was going to rename the club the San Francisco Golden Seals. Finley went on to say that the team would play all of its home games in Oakland still, but that the Seals had more of an identity with the city of San Francisco. Finley went on to ask the newspaper to hold back on the story, While he checked with his lawyer back in, naturally, Philadelphia, and with the National Hockey League, with whom he had to clear the name change, he promised the examiner the exclusive story and the scoop when the change was made public. However, Charlie then reneged on that deal and announced it at the Wednesday evening dinner, surprising everybody, including the hockey writers for the San Francisco Examiner. On Friday evening, the new Golden Seals were to face the Boston Bruins, and all the hype generated appeared to pay off. At least that's what Charlie probably thought. The game was not only a complete sellout, with nearly 13,000 fans in the building, but We hadn't heard this in Oakland before. Over 3,000 fans who wanted to see the team's first game of the season were turned away. There was no room for anybody to get in. And in fact, the box office weren't even open that night since the game had been sold out days before. You know, maybe hockey really can make it in the Bay Area with the help of an entrepreneur and a showman like Charles O. Finley. On Thursday the Red Wings announced that they'd fired their rookie coach who had just been hired before the season. Only this was the Ontario Hockey Association Junior A Hamilton Red Wings and the coach in question was Doug McKay. This would be the second time McKay had left the Red Wings in this young season. Just before the opening game he told owner Nick Durbano he was quitting because of what he perceived as interference from the owner in doing his job. Durbano at that time convinced McKay to remain on the job. Well later this week in dumping McKay Durbano said it was a complete lack of compatibility between himself and the coach and that's what caused McKay's dismissal. He also said that Doug McKay was not applying the interest to the job that it requires. Now Durbano acknowledged that the coach of the Red Wings position is a part-time employment, but it required more than McKay was seemed willing to commit. Who's going to replace uh, McKay? Well, it seems that Nick Durbano now assumes the role of manager coach as well as owner, but he is looking for a replacement, at least as a coach. And he'll announce that as soon as he gets a suitable candidate. There was a little back and forth between former Bruins coach Harry Sinden and Boston owner Weston Adams this week. In an article in Sports Illustrated, Sinden said, I knew halfway through the 69-70 season that no matter what happened, Stanley Cup or no Stanley Cup, I would not be coaching the Bruins for another year. Sinden said he asked for an $8,000 raise and was offered $3,000 by general manager Milt Schmidt. Bruins owner Weston Adams, a little miffed that uh, Sinden making them sound like they were cheap, said this. To the best of my knowledge, Harry Sinden approached Milt in late December and asked about a new contract and Milt told him it's not fair to talk contract in the middle of the season. We had every intention of having him return as coach. Yeah, but he didn't say they were going to give him a decent raise or not they just wanted him back probably on the cheap. Sinden went on to say that he realized he was not a member of the Bruins management inner circle when he says he was not consulted over that huge 1967 trade with Chicago that brought Phil Esposito, Ken Hodge and Freddie Stanfield to the Bruins. Adams response to that was why should he be consulted? Management makes the trades but I'm sure he was consulted and asked for his input on the players. Sinden made another of other points in the Sports Illustrated article, all of which, of course, were refuted by Adams. This looks like that divorce is final now for sure, and any reunion by the Bruins and Sinden is very, very unlikely. I wonder if Harry will end up somewhere else in the NHL when he gets tired of working in a corporate environment. The Minnesota North Stars finally got around to naming their new captain this week. And he is veteran defenseman Ted Harris, who was acquired this summer from the Montreal Canadiens. And Ted Harris is a warrior. He's a tough guy. And he is a leader. And he should do a great job in leading the North Stars. And the L.A. Kings got some bad news this week. Young center Butch Goring, one of their brightest prospects, has been admitted to hospital in Los Angeles, suffering from not one, but two debilitating diseases. Goring is in Daniel Freeman Hospital in LA, undergoing treatment for mononucleosis and a mild case of hepatitis. Butch, who was eight pounds underweight, at training camp and complaining of fatigue before the dual diagnosis is expected to miss about a month of time. And this first full week of the National Hockey League season ended much as it began, at least for the Toronto Maple Leafs, in uh, a game what probably could consider a microcosm of their entire season Saturday evening at Maple Leaf Gardens the Leafs took on the powerful New York Rangers the game started well for Toronto with an early great save by goalie Jacques Plante giving gardens fans hope that the net minding in Toronto might just be improved enough to make the Leafs competitive and maybe even fight for a playoff spot Elman lost the drive to shoot. Dave Ballone gets it back to the blue line. Horton shoots it. Oh, and Jack Clark did the splits and picked that puck up with his left hand right off his right toe. And then just a few minutes later, the Maple Leafs opened the scoring on a great two-on-one play engineered by Ron Ellis and finished by an opportunistic Paul Henderson. Here's a chance for Ellis. Point down with Henderson. One man back. They're over the line. Ellis closing in to Henderson. He shoots it. Oh! a perfectly played goal with a two-on-one break and Ronnie Ellis bringing that puck up the right side but to watch Henderson drop back to give him somebody to pass it to Tim Horton plays it perfectly down the middle and as soon as that puck hits Henderson's stick it's gone and beats Villamure over his right shoulder up in the top corner. And that everyone is our show for this week that's the news we have for you and what do we learn in this first full week of the National Hockey League 1970-71 season. Well, we learned that yet another Montreal Canadiens veteran would rather retire than play for the Habs, and this player definitely was one that was not getting along with coach Claude Ruel. We learned that Red Wings rookie coach Ned Harkness learned that life in the NHL is not the bed of roses he figured it would be when he signed his contract and that Ned suddenly feels that his players are not giving him a full effort in their games. And we learned that a future reunion between the Boston Bruins and former coach Harry Sinden was probably scuttled by Harry's comments in an article in the magazine Sports Illustrated this week that really ticked off owner Weston Adams. You don't tick off the owner. Next week, we have a lot of news for you as well. We'll have a great look at how the city of Buffalo welcomed the NHL as the Sabres had their home opener in Memorial Auditorium. We have, uh, thanks to the Buffalo Courier Express, some great words from owner Seymour Knox on his new team and how it came to be. Uh, there's a veteran old retired Buffalo sports writer that will talk about some of the early days in the city of Buffalo as far as hockey went and uh, we'll have some history on the Sabres Home Memorial Auditorium. We also have news on some of the dysfunction around the Oakland Seals amid rumors that General Manager Frank Selke Jr., was going to be shown the door by owner Charles O. Finley. And we have some details on all the key games of the week, plus much, much more. The 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast is produced by Andy Cole, and we can't thank him enough for all his hard work. Andy is a true professional, and if you have a podcast that you think could use his obvious skill... Let me know and I'll uh, see if he has time to help you out. The very popular Juno-nominated Toronto indie rock group, the Rural Alberta Advantage, provides our introduction music. And if you ever hear them live or get a chance to hear them live, take advantage of it. We have news that they are now in the studio, socially distanced, of course, making some great new music. And we can't wait to hear what that's going to be like. Our other musical pieces and sound effects are by Andy Cole as well in the podcast. Our research comes from files from the Toronto Star, the Toronto Globe and Mail, and of course, the many publications found at newspapers.com. You can find us on Twitter at at Hockey50Years. We have a Facebook page under 50 Years Ago in Hockey. We also have a WordPress site, hockey50yearsago.com, where we have news about this account. And of course, we're now on YouTube as well. This podcast, of course, is available wherever you download your favorite podcasts. And we thank to everyone who tunes into our show each week. This National Hockey League 1970-71 season is already starting out and promises to be a great year, one of the historic seasons. And we'll be with you all the way on that. And on that note, we will see you next time. When the